Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 63. This time, Pippin and I will be answering questions from our audience on Twitter. But first, a word from our sponsors. I registered my first ever domain name in 1999, 17 years ago. Back then, there was one place to register domain names, a company called Network Solutions. Many of you probably already know this, but did you know that Network Solutions also has a WordPress hosting platform? They do. It's called Secure WordPress. It's a managed WordPress hosting platform with an emphasis on security. They automatically keep WordPress core and your themes and plugins up to date. They have daily backups. They provide malware scanning and removal. And they put your site behind a data center class firewall to protect against zero day hacks and DDoS attacks. They have expert tech support available 24 seven via chat and phone. Network Solutions takes care of keeping your site locked down and up to date so you can focus on your business. Visit getnetsol.com slash apply filters today to get started. That's getnetsol, N-E-T-S-O-L dot com slash apply filters. And now back to the show. All right. Let's jump right in. Uh, so these are questions that we solicited from Twitter that listeners were kind enough to submit. Uh, and there are some development questions, there are some business questions, and a few miscellaneous. Uh, we're going to do our best to get to all of them. But any question that doesn't get answered, we will move on over to a second episode of The Mailbag. All right, let's go with the first one. So this comes from Josh Ebby. And I apologize if I butcher your name or anyone else's. And Josh asked, singleton or no singleton? When and why should they be used or avoided for a plugin? The WordPress boilerplate no longer uses a singleton. Why? Uh, the, sorry, the WordPress plugin boilerplate. So why? Uh, Brad, do you want to jump in and with your opinions on singletons versus no singletons? Sure. I really, I actually really like the singleton pattern. <laughs> the way I started developing WordPress plugins when I first started, I just wrote all my functions in the global scope. And I put like a little prefix on the on the front of each one, usually like, I think it was usually BT, just my initials underscore, and then whatever the function name was. And then I started uh, encapsulating like groups of functions into classes. And then I eventually, I think I got to singleton. So the singleton allows you to maintain uh, each of those classes, one object. So... We should probably explain like what a singleton is first, right? Basically, I mean, a singleton is a, is a structure where a class can only have one instance of it in memory at a time. So usually with, with most objects, you will instantiate an ins instance of that object and you could have one, two, three, or even four instances. A, a singleton uh, is a very appropriately coined term because it means there's only ever one single instance of that object in, mem in memory. Right. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so what I was doing before I was using singletons, I was just instantiating the class and then making the variable that I would set it to like global, I think. And then I learned about singletons and that allows you to maintain it uh, kind of in a better way. 
Um, what the way you usually do it is you de declare a static variable within the class. Is that right? Is that how yep. you do it? Yeah. Uh, and then you create a function called, usually it's called instance, and that will either get the current object or if it doesn't exist yet, create it. It's just a kind of a neater way, I think, of doing it. That's my opinion. What, what do you think, Pippin? Well, first, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong way that fits every scenario. Um, singletons are one of those areas that hardcore PHP developers love to argue and spit at each other about because there are people that have very, very firm beliefs on both sides. I think that's kind of silly and crazy to get so strict about it. And there are times when it's good. There are times that they make less sense. For me, I use them in most of our plugins, but we use them sparingly. So we use them to set up a single instance of the entire plugin. For example, we have an, e an easy digital downloads class in ADD, and then we have one in affiliate WP, and we have one in others, where that class is a wrapper to all of the other code in the plugin. So other, in other classes, functions, methods, et cetera. And that single class, that singleton class is kind of our main entry point into the rest of the code. So for example, if you want to access the database class, instead of instantiating a new instance of that database, you simply reference the singleton, which then has a, a property inside of it that contains an object of the database class. And that works really well for us. Do you, do you wrap that in a function? Because I've seen yes. that as well. So like maybe you have a function called EDD or something. Yep, that's exactly right. So like we have a, a, a class called Easy Digital Downloads and then we have a function called EDD. So if you want to get an, the instance of the database class or an instance of the database class, you could, you could simply say EDD customers DB um, and you would treat the EDD function as an object because that's what it returns. So that function simply returns the, the instance of the easy digital downloads class. Right. So, so then that lends itself to chaining as well, right? So yes. you could do... Which is exactly what we use it for. Right. Which is really, I mean, it's just kind of a nice, it's nice code. You, you can yep. see, see it just, just so clear uh, and so nice and neat. The, the main time that I would, I would say you shouldn't use a singleton or, or honestly, I think there are far fewer cases where you should use one than when you shouldn't. And if you were ever going to extend a class for any reason, or you might want multiple instances of it, don't use a singleton. Right. Why? Well, because an, a singleton inherently is there's only one instance of that class in memory. So let's let, let's right, say right. That you sorry have, sorry if you I, I meant why is uh, extending it bad like why extending it maybe not not necessarily bad. Uh, yeah, I, I think can, it's, <laughs> I'm gonna have a hard time answering that question. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either, actually. It, it gets tricky, honestly. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of like wh where the problem would lie if you extended it. I don't think there would be an issue. Like technically you could override a class that's set up as a singleton and you could right. still use it as I a singleton. I know that on our, like our wrapper classes that we used for, for like the plugin loaders, we almost always declare final on them intentionally so that they cannot be extended. Right. Because they're not designed to be extended. They are simply a wrapper. They are not an actual object. Right. Or they're not, they're not treated like most objects are. Right. So, so let's go and work with concrete examples. So like uh, 
like a, if we, you were writing a class that represented, let's say, an order in EDD, or yeah, let's say an order, um, then then that one you you would probably want multiple instances of an order potentially. Oh, absolutely. Right. So that would be an example of that would not work for the singleton pattern. <laughs> you don't want you don't want an instance method in that class. No, because in that case, you're going to run to a problem. Let's say that you instantiated an, an order object and it was set up for as a, as a singleton. And then a little bit lower down, you inst instantiated a second instance of it with, let's say, for a different customer. It's not going to work. Right. Yep, that makes sense. Josh had asked about the WP plugin boilerplate, saying that it used to use a singleton and no longer does. Um, so we went ahead and, and actually asked uh, Tom McFarland, the original maintainer of the plugin boilerplate, what his opinion was on it. Now, the plugin boilerplate has actually been transferred to a new owner at this point. So Tom is not involved anymore and was not involved with the decision to get rid of or change a singleton, but he did still have a really good answer. And so we went ahead and got one from him. And here it is. Even though I included the singleton in the boilerplate and I do use it, I don't want to push the idea that it's the single one way to be building classes or that it's like how it needs, how it should be the de facto way of doing something because uh, you might, well, A, if you just have singletons everywhere, you're kind of defeating object-oriented programming. And two, uh, if you are just working on a single point of entry and you have like a bootstrap file and you need to start the plugin up, um, creating a single instance for that main class makes sense, but doing so for all of them doesn't. And so it being removed makes me wonder, I would wanna have some context because otherwise you're just gonna have all of these orphaned instances sitting in memory and it's gonna be spinning everything up whenever the plugin starts. Cool. That's a, that was a pretty great answer. Um, I think he did a much better job than I did <laughs> explaining it. Tom echoed kind of the way that we that I think you and I both use singletons as well as using it as that wrapper basically for the, the plugin load process. Yeah. 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 So should we move okay. on to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this one came from Jamie O and it's, he says page builders around WordPress 4.5 feel like custom post types around WordPress 2.9 agree or disagree how to make core get better here. So you, you understand what he's talking about here. I, well, I think I, I missed. I think I, have, I think I know what you're talking about, Jamie. And if we are completely wrong or mostly wrong, uh, feel free to let us know. We would love to, to follow up with this. But, but I think what Jamie's asking, um, so first he's saying that originally when custom post apps were introduced in WordPress 2.9, they were a little bit limited, but they were also kind of that door to a ton of new features or the door to significant change in the way that WordPress plugins are built, WordPress themes are built, and the way that WordPress sites run and kind of the features that you have. And so page builders right now feel a bit like WordPress, like custom post types did in 2.9 in that they're a little bit rough, everybody's using them differently, but they are kind of that doorway to see what the next 10 years of, of WordPress will be like um, to like true front end editors that are, uh, ubiquitous or, or like a uniform standard, things like that. I, I think that's what Jamie is asking and, and suggesting. Um, agree or disagree? Um, I don't, I'm a little bit torn. Um, I think page builders are a little bit rough right now. 
because they're a little bit like the Wild West in that everybody is doing them their own way and doing them differently. There is no standard for how to do it. I think they have a lot of potential for pushing WordPress further and, and changing the way that users use WordPress. I'm a little jaded as well because I personally don't like them. Right. Um, but is that because is that because they're so th- that they're immature and you just don't like kind of the, the, the current state of affairs or um, or you just don't like the idea anyway? <laughs> I think the idea is great. Um, like, I mean, we there's we've seen drag and drop interfaces and and layout builders for years in tons of different things, everything from like a, like the form builder plugins to. Shoot, that's the best example that I have. But drag and drop interfaces where users have the flexibility to tweak and change things the way they want through controls without actually diving into CSS or things like that are, I mean, they've been around for a long time and I think they're they're here to stay. I do think that page builders are problematic right now because everyone is different and they, some of them are better than others at not locking users into that page builder. There are some page builders right now that if you use that to build the content on a page and then you want to move to a different page builder, you're pretty much screwed. Right. So it's a lock-in, right? Right. That's a good point. Um, so those are, it's, for me, it's that they're, they're, everyone is different. There is no consistency between them and that, that lock-in effect. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that those are necessarily things that you can avoid. Those are natural progressions of the uh, evolvement of a feature of, of, a, of interfaces of things like that. Uh, and, and we saw that a lot with custom post types at the beginning when they were brand new as well. I mean, people, uh, everybody registering their own post types for different things and locking content into the, those particular plugins. And now we've moved away from that a little bit, created some consistency. I think overall the comparison is pretty, uh, pretty accurate. Yeah, I think that the thing that differs the most here is that custom post types was a, uh, an, you know, initiative by the WordPress core team, whereas page builders have been largely third party, right? Like largely, you know, people from the community building products, um, which is which is why you have this kind of fragmentation, right? That's how things go in the free market, um, which is fine. To solve the problem that that you were just talking about about lock in, I mean, there is only one way to do that, and it's to get it to get it into WordPress core, right? Do you follow the Fields API kind of stuff in I WordPress follow core? It a little bit. Yeah, isn't that kind of what they're tackling there a little bit? Um, uh, to me, it's much like the customizer in that it is not to say that the Fields API and the customizer are the same thing, not remotely, but they are they are both stepping stones to getting some kind of page building interface, front end editing interface, et cetera, into core. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Should we move on to the next one? Yeah. All right, so Frank Klein asked, I'd be interested in your thoughts about whether and or how well WordPress fits into the larger PHP ecosystem. Hmm. Tackle this first. Uh, so, <laughs> That's a big question. It is a big question. I feel like WordPress is definitely still a CMS for the most part. I mean, I, I think that most people outside of the WordPress community still views 
WordPress. I mean, some of them still view WordPress as a blog system and not, not even as like a flexible enough to be a content management system. I think that's changed a lot, though. I think I think WordPress gets quite a bit of credit to being a CMS and nowadays. I think within the community, we think of WordPress now as an app platform. It's that it's gone, you know, it's gotten to that point. Um, with, especially now with the the REST API, like we're, it's it's really kind of going in that direction. My gut is telling me that I don't think people outside of the WordPress community in the larger PHP ecosystem really see it that way. <laughs> I'd I'd say they probably still see it, WordPress as a CMS or a blog. So I think there's some some other ways we can look at it too. So the first one is that you're damn right. WordPress fits into larger PHP ecosystem because it powers 30% of the web. Um, so whether the PHP world likes that or dislikes it, it is a tr- it is the fact. It's the way it is. And so that being said, it means that the, the WordPress user base is a huge chunk of the PHP user base. And so there has to be communication back and forth in, in both directions. Yeah. I, I think another, another way to look at it is I think people outside of the WordPress community, people that develop on more modern frameworks like Laravel, for example, they look at WordPress and they see old, you know, old code that that they don't want to be working with. And I think that is a big a big problem that we face in the WordPress community in attracting talent to work on, you know, WordPress plugins or or whatever. Um, and you know, they would, some developers don't want to touch WordPress. They'd be much happier with Laravel or another kind of more modern framework that are using namespaces and all the other uh, nice features in the newest versions of PHP. I guess there's all kinds of ways to look at this question. I think as people that spend a lot of time in the WordPress world, I think every WordPress developer should do uh, themselves a favor and pay attention to the outside PHP world. Uh, because there is a whole lot that can be learned and there's a whole lot that can be gleaned from it. And at the same time, I think it should go the other direction. Um, I think the larger PHP community, whether it is Laravel or CodeIgnite or all of the other different PHP frameworks, I think they should be watching WordPress at the same time. And there's two main examples where I think they would learn from WordPress. And number one is updates. WordPress has proven to, to have one of the most reliable update systems of any system out there, especially when it comes to fixing security problems. I mean, it's a little bit ironic or maybe not ironic at all. And I don't think this is a coincidence. WordPress was originally known for not being secure. And yet now WordPress has a single best track record for fixing security problems and getting them pushed out to millions of sites faster than anybody else. And that's something that I think every PHP project should look at trying to emulate. That wasn't an accident. And number two is that respect for backwards compatibility while also fixing security problems and delivering them to everybody um, within minutes. If there's any impact that WordPress could have on the world of the entire development world, really, it's those two aspects in my mind. It's interesting, though, the backwards compatibility thing, because I'm just thinking of Laravel in that context. And... I think they probably don't look at backwards compatibility the same way that they just move forward with, with, with the latest, greatest, you know, uh, it's a little bit different situation though, too, I think. 
So I mentioned updates and security. I mean, backwards compatibility and security through the update system. I think you have to look at both of those together because honestly, if you want to have an update system that updates every single WordPress site within minutes, you have to trade backwards compatibility as a foundation. Because if you don't, every time you update, you break millions of sites or hundreds of thousands or however big your user base is. And so those two are, are intrinsically tied together. I wonder if it's even fair, really, to compare WordPress to Laravel, right? Like, they're used for two very different things for the most part. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what they do you, really are. What, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that? I, like, I don't think you can compare them and, and uh, like in terms of features or focuses or what they do, but I think you can still take bigger picture lessons from each of them. Right. Yeah. And right. I think that applies to any kind of project. Cool. Should we move on? Yep. All right. So oh, this, you take this one. Sure. Jonathan Christopher says, guidelines for determining using a filter that returns true or false versus an internal ad action call. Hmm. What do you think? I'm pretty sure Jonathan's asking, like, let's say if you have a filter and that returns true or false, or returns the value from another action or filter? Is there a guideline for determining that? And I may completely be misunderstanding that question. I'm, I'm not even I'm not even clear on what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that really makes sense. Let me let me try this again. Let's say that you have a f- function, and it re- its return value is either true or false. And then in another scenario, you have a function and its return value is a filter, is the value passed through a filter or the, the value from an action, um, like a, a, a reference array. What's the guideline for choosing, choosing when to do that? Like, so like, when should you make your, your function extendable via a filter? And, and Jonathan, if that's not what you're actually asking, uh, follow up, let us know, we'd be happy to answer it again. So let's, let's do this. When should you make a function or not necessarily a function, a return value filterable or have an app, have actions around it? That's tricky because I mean, there's, I mean, it depends on the use case, right? Or it depends on the scenario because you may want people to be able to extend that or maybe not. Maybe, I mean, it depends. Allowing people to extend it is allowing them to break it. Sure. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, it's allowing them to circumvent your licensing or, you know, or who knows what, right? There's all kinds of reasons you might not want to filter something. Um, maybe, maybe it's a UI thing. Maybe it's, uh, you know, allowing them to filter it. They could completely, you know, change the UI and, and, and make your product look terrible or, or ruin it. Maybe that's a concern. Maybe it's not. Um, I have a, Here's an example that we had recently. Uh, and actually, I'm going to change it a little bit. So we recently introduced a new class in EDD. Uh, and we've done this in Affiliate WP as well. But it was a new object for our payment record. So it was basically an order object. And we chose to put the keyword final on the class because we did not want anybody to extend it yet. And we did that because we were not sure that we had set this class in stone. 
we weren't sure that we weren't going to change it over the next five point releases. And we didn't want to unintentionally break somebody's code because they extended it before we were ready for them to extend it. I think you can take the same mindset and treat filters the same way, filters and actions. When you use them, and I do believe you should use them prominently, you should make sure that you're using them in a way that you're not going to change in a week or in a month. It's something that is, at least for now, you plan to leave it as is for the foreseeable future. Because the moment that somebody ties into that filter or that action, you now have a backwards compatibility issue if you choose to change it. Yeah, I think I think that's, let's go to the next one. Jonathan had another question actually, and he said, what should be an object? First, what should be a standalone function? Well, um, the way I look at this is, Objects should be objects. <laughs> an order should be an object. Uh, you know, if you're doing a site for cataloging music, maybe you have albums. Like that would be an object. Like a and then maybe that album contains song objects. Yeah. Or yeah. Sure. And then maybe it also relates to an artist object. I mean, this is basic object-oriented programming stuff. But so I, I think a standalone function in the global scope, I mean, I, we, we just gave a really good example of that, your EDD function that, that kind of launches the singleton for your, your class. Like that's a perfect example of a function that belongs in the global scope. If, if you have a function, let's, let's continue with the, the album thing, like get get album in the global scope. Well, if you get maybe that inside that function, it's actually a call to the to, to create a new instance of the album object and return that that album object. That might be a good idea to, to have a global function for get album so that you can do it with less code. If you're doing, if you're getting the album a lot, maybe maybe that makes sense instead of having to instantiate the object and then and then do a get call uh, for every you know every time. Maybe save like three lines or four lines of code there. Generally speaking, though, I would put most of my global functions that I used to put in the global scope. I would put those inside a class now. Um, what about you? Uh, yeah, I would echo the same thing. I would remember to keep in mind that a function should do one thing and one thing only. You sh a function shouldn't be doing three things. A function should be doing one. So in this case, get album, album, the only thing that would ever do is return an instance of that album object. You could then have a separate function that would say get album songs or get album date. And all it does is retrieve those properties from that object, but it's usable in the global scope. Like a WordPress Core example would be the WP post object. It is an object that represents, contains all of the post date, all of the data for a post in the database. And then there are many global functions like the title, the content, et cetera, that all they do is go and retrieve that field from the object. You're talking about template functions, I guess, there. So that's, a, that's another can of worms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, let's uh, go on to Dan's question. Dan Beal asks uh, your opinions on using classes without real object-oriented programming. Do you do you know what he means oh, by that? I, I like this question. 
Okay. So can you explain it to me? <laughs> All right. So object-oriented programming is the idea of working with objects. So we've talked about an album object that maybe then contains song objects or the WordPress post object or an order object or perhaps a customer object. You can also, so those are true objects. You could also have classes that are nothing more than a wrapper for a bunch of methods inside. So let's say that you used to have a whole bunch of functions and they're all prefixed with your unique prefix. So like mine used to be PW underscore. Brad, I think you said yours was BT underscore. So you can have all of these global functions and they're all pseudo namespaced, AKA they're all prefixed with your prefix. But what if you wanted to instead have only one prefix or only one thing that is prefixed? What you can do is you can set up a class so like mine would be PW underscore whatever the class is called. And then that contains all of those what were global functions as methods without any prefixes. So something like get order, get albums, get songs, get whatever I want. And I can have all of this, these list of functions. So for example, I can have a helper class that is just a bunch of helper methods. Uh, we actually use one in Easy Digital Downloads, but we use several actually. Um, but one of them that we use is called EDD HTML elements. And all it does, that class has a bunch of methods that return standardized HTML. So we have one for get product dropdown, uh, get text field, get select field, so that we can use these throughout our code base without having to rewrite all HTML all the time. I have no problem with classes that are not real object-oriented programming. Right. So they, they don't, they're, they're classes that don't represent objects. Yes. So. So that's, I mean, yeah, I'm fine with it too. I mean, if the alternative is just to prefix a bunch of global functions, I don't see much difference between that, between the two, you know? I will say that this case, these kind of classes are perfect examples of things that I think singletons work really well for. Yes. I mean, your your example at the start of the show where you were talking about the EDD or the easy digital downloads class, I mean, that's a perfect example of, of a, a class that's not an object, but uh, contains a bunch of methods that are not in the global scope. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, oh, totally right. fine. Let's move okay, on. Okay, so we're gonna, that's all of the development questions we have. Uh, now we've got a couple of business questions and we've only, we've got time for just a few more questions and then any others we don't get to, we'll get to on another show. I'm so sorry, I'm gonna butcher your last name. <laughs> uh, Joe G, because that's easier for me. <laughs> Joe, so, Joe Gilmet, I think Gilmet, is what right. I say. That's how all I'm right. going to so say it. <laughs> Joe asked, what has been the most effective online marketing method? To what do you attribute the majority of your sales? Um, I can't answer this question. Um, Brad? <laughs> On the online marketing method? Oh, right, because you did all the word of mouth. Is that what you mean? That's why you can't answer it? Or? Uh, I'll, I'll elaborate in a moment. Do you have a good answer for him? Okay. Um, What's the most effective online marketing method? Uh, was just blogging uh, for us. I mean, we've we've done we started blogging weekly just over a year ago, and we've like I think six times the traffic to our blog now that, than we did a year and a half ago. Um, and has that have you been able to now measure that in sales increase? No, yeah, I can't attribute it to sales directly, but indirectly, I've from word of like I've, people have told us, you know, I, you know, I followed your blog, I read a bunch of your blog posts, and then I just bought your product because I was just so impressed. And those kinds of comments lead me to believe that it's working. Um, but it's really, really difficult to track 
exactly, you know, what impact blogging is having on sales because we're also running, you know, Facebook ads, we're running, you know, remarketing campaigns, we're running, you know, there's all kinds of different ways people can be influenced to buy, right? right. So, so it's, it's hard to say they bought because of that. Yeah, it's called it's called attribution to be to be able to attribute a thing to the sale. And it's it's extremely difficult and I've kind of just given up to be honest. A company of our size without a dedicated person that just focused on marketing, we just don't have the time to be trying to figure out what each sale, you know, how each sale was was, you know, came about. <laughs> So, yeah, we don't spend uh, any time on that. We just do, do kind of uh, the things that we, we think are going to work and, and kind of use like a gut feel for like, you know, is it working? Is it not working? Let's turn it. One of the best ways to determine if it's working or not, just turn it off. See what happens. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Potentially costly experiment. Yes, it can be. Um, so, honestly, if I can now try to give an actual answer. So I said I couldn't answer it originally because um, part of me doesn't really know. Again, we have all of these different efforts, just like just like what you mentioned, Brad, and we can measure results from them, but there are so many indirect influencing factors on, on everything that we do. So is our email marketing that we do the most successful? Well, we know it works, but how much of it, how many sales that we influence, but didn't get it directly attributed to. We don't know. How much has our, our, our blogging done or the community outreach we're doing at, at WordCamps? How, how do all of those affect? It's, it's hard to measure. I will say, I think there are two that, or, or three really that I have found to be absolutely successful um, to varying, varying degrees. Number one is, is blogging, just like you mentioned. There is no question about it. We don't necessarily have an exact measure onto it, on it. Like every time we blog, we make $500 more. No, we don't have anything like that, but we know that consistently it drives traffic and that drives sales. Next is our email list, getting people subscribed to that. Um, and we've had a few ways that we've been very successful with it. The main one inside of Easy Digital Downloads is rewarding people with a discount code and an email subscription if they will opt in to anonymous data tracking. If you install EDD on a WordPress site, you'll see that you're asked a message, asked if you would like to opt in. If you do, you get a discount and you get you get put into an email list that then has some automation routines. Um, I think the automation routines in our email list are incredibly important. So for example, we have some, some email flows that happen the moment you get subscribed to the list. We have other email flows that happen anytime you purchase a partic particular extension. There's other flows that happen the moment you purchase anything from the store. There's all of these automated follow-up emails, and those are absolutely valuable and work really, really well. Um, I have uh, something to add to this yeah. as well. Um, so Dave Collins is kind of an expert on SEO, and he also, uh, he's pretty smart. Uh, he knows a lot about paid advertising, and, and he was on uh, the Rogue Startups podcast a little while ago, and they were talking about attribution. And, and he brought up like how in the past people, you know, marketing companies didn't know exactly, they couldn't track every single person. It's only with the internet that we can actually, you know, set a cookie and track people exactly where they go and everything. And, and so, so we, we've got all this data now, 
but really no good way of making any sense of it. Um, and, but in the past, what they, you know, you would take out an ad on a billboard, you know, beside the highway or something. But that was part of a larger campaign, right? That there was billboards, there was magazine ads, there was TV ads, there was all these things that made up the whole campaign. And they would just measure the effect on sales of that campaign. So if you ran the, the campaign in May, you know, how did it affect May, May sales? What I took away from that is that we st I should stop being so granular. Stop stop looking at every all the details and just kind of look at the, the bigger picture. Um, he also told a story about one of his customers, how they just turned off their Google ads because they couldn't figure out if they were working or not. And their sales plummeted. <laughs> and so they, they, turned they, the, working. they turned them back on immediately. Um, so, yeah, so they were working. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, we got, we have all this data, but it's, it's not, it's not necessarily, you just made a, um, maybe an important takeaway for anybody. And, and that's, it's hard to say what works and what doesn't, if you're constantly doing all of these different things, but if you want to, to test the effectiveness, turn it on, turn it off and do that a few times and then start comparing. So maybe like if you're doing a whole bunch of email marketing, do it and then don't do anything for a month. Do it. Don't do anything for a month. Now that might be a little dangerous because you, I mean, you don't always want to play with fire, but I think that's a, a good way to figure out the effectiveness. If you turn something off and you discover there is zero change, you should probably stop doing that. Yeah. It's also dangerous to not know though yeah. too, right? Because sure. you could just be flushing money down the toilet. So it is probably a good idea to test that your, your, you know, things are working. Um, so I'll link up to that uh, podcast in the show notes. Uh, I, I highly recommend Dave is uh, a genius with SEO and paid advertising. So, so check Great. that out. Do we have uh, time for one more? Sure. Uh, okay. So James Northard asks freemium or premium model, which do you prefer and why growing leads seems easier with freemium? Ooh, this is a good one. I, I've, I've got a lot of lot to say about this, but uh, you want to start? Sure. Um, well, first, there's not one perfect fit for every product. It's a little bit cliche, but I think it's absolutely true. If I had to pick one, though, I would go premium only. Uh, and that's based purely on my own experience of having done both models and variations of both models overall. Uh, I personally enjoy the premium model more. I think it's a lot easier to maintain. It's easier to work within. All right. Well, since we're, since we're talking marketing and business, let me put it this way. It's a heck of a lot easier to get 59 bucks out of somebody if you are a premium only product than if you are freemium. That's simply because if they want it, they're going to pay for it. If they don't, they're not. So you don't have to worry about people that come in, use the free version, and then spending hours or multiple emails or anything trying to upsell them to get them to actually upgrade to a paid version. If you have, if you have a premium, they're either in or they're out. That would be my, my main reaction. Right. So easy digital downloads would be considered freemium, I think. Huh? And then affiliate LP, because you don't have like a light version or any free version anywhere, that would be considered premium, right? Yep. And then Only. Restricted Content Pro would pretty much be premium as well. It does have right. a free version, but it's it's not even the same plugin. Right. I actually only do freemium. Uh, we, our two plugins have light versions and then we're upselling to, to freemium. 
Um, I personally like that better to give people a taste of the quality of your product, et cetera, et cetera. Because uh, I, I find it's hard to do trials with WordPress plugins <laughs> because you kind of give it away if you just give people the product. I, I, I do like freemium uh, and upselling people. Uh, but I do think you have to charge a price from day one. If I had to choose between having a paid version on day one and no light version or having just the light version, I would choose having just the paid version on day one because it sets the expectation for the product, right? Uh, if pe people only see the free version ever and, and no upsell to the pro, uh, their expectation is that it's always gonna be free and new features are always gonna be free. So I, I feel like a lot of it's about expectations. Expectations are one of the reasons why I like the premium only as well. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people that will be mad with a freemium model, freemium, sorry, will be irritated, disgruntled, mad, what have you, if they're using a freemium version and then they discover that the feature that they need is in the, in the premium version. And for whatever reason, the experience of upgrading is often harsher or more difficult for users to cope with than it is if you just had to purchase it to begin with. I don't, I don't know why that's true, but it, it seems to be that way. I, I think over, overall, at least like our own interactions with customers, tends to be more positive with a premium only as opposed to trying to push upgrades onto free customers. Right. Huh. Now, I could be completely wrong and it's purely, um, that's entirely subjective and it's based on my own experience, but, and it's not gonna be the same for everybody, but that's my thought. What about the next part of his question about growing leads seems easier with freemium? What do you think? Yeah, so I, that's, I, I kind of was just gonna bring that up. Like, is the wordpress.org repository worth it, right? It's because you can't put a premium plugin in there. So your only option, if you want that marketing channel, uh, is to put a free plugin in there that does provide value and support it a little bit anyway. I mean, not everyone does support their, their free products, but what do you think on that? I think it's definitely easier. Like it's very successful for us with, with EDD because every time that somebody installs the free version, we ask them if they would like a discount code in exchange for their email address and anonymous data tracking. Uh, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that opt into that. The majority do actually. And so we get tons of leads. Our email list is huge because of that. And if we didn't have that, our email list would be significantly smaller. The affiliate WP email list, for example, is minute in comparison. And it's because we don't have that um, access to the leads from wordpress.org. Now, that being said, that does not mean that those leads are inherently valuable. Uh, as it stands right now, Affiliate WP and EDD are almost equal in terms of their, their monthly value and revenue. And one of them has hundreds or thousands of leads every single month from wordpress.org and one has zero. Right, but also what's like the support costs between right. difference between EDD and because you're supporting all those free, the, the free users you do have to right. support. Yep. So, and I'll so. tell you, EDD is much more difficult for, for us to support than affiliate MVP right. by multiple magnitudes. Right, right. So there's another kind of argument for the premium model against yep. freemium. I don't yeah. think there is one answer for anybody. I think it's a lot of, it's very subjective. It's, I mean, it largely depends on what's the product. Uh, how do you want to run it? Um, but I think it's important to look at the positives and the negatives of both sides. Yeah. 
I agree. I mean, it, it depends on the nature of the product as well. I think, I Definitely. think, e, I think EDD is is better served as as a plugin, uh, like a free base plugin with add-ons. It seems anyway. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that EDD would work as a as a premium only product. It might. Uh, I mean, I can't answer that because we've never done it. Uh, I, I wish there was a way that I could answer that question and figure it out because I'd love to know but that would be a pretty tough experiment. Right. There is no other e-commerce plugin for WordPress that's paid only, is there? Or There used to be. Um, shop plugin was paid right. only originally. Right. And what's its current They changed status? to the freemium model. Oh, they changed the freemium. Huh. That would be be good. Uh, <laughs> it'd be a good question to ask them then. Why did it they would. change? And how yeah, is it going? And, and was it a positive or negative in the end? Right. Well, yep. maybe maybe for you know a future episode, we'll have someone on from shop. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a few questions left. We will include them in another episode of the Mailbag. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to send them to us on Twitter or via email or through the website. We'd love to hear them. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.